From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Integrative medicine uses wellness practices such as stress management, meditation, massage therapy, and acupuncture to help people cope with diseases and conditions like cancer, persistent pain, and chronic fatigue, among others. Integrative therapies are intended to complement, not replace, conventional Western medicine. On today's program, we'll learn more about integrative medicine in cancer care from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, treatment for bile duct cancer. And the common circulatory problem, peripheral artery disease. That's this week's program. Up next. Tracy, a lot of people with cancer are interested in trying almost anything that may help them, including complementary, alternative, or non-traditional treatments. But the question is, what's legitimate, what's reasonable and might help, and what's bogus or not legitimate? Hmm. Here to help us sort out the good from the bad is the Director of Research for the Mayo Clinic Integrative Medicine Program and Medical Director of the Well Living Lab, Dr. Brent Bauer. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Bauer. Great to be back. Thank you. Nice to see you. I kind of like this, the Well Living Lab. Have you got any spots open there? Uh, we always have room for you. What What is that? So it's a place where we actually can monitor the environment and see the impact of the indoor environment on human health. So how much light comes into your eyes, what the air quality might be doing, what does it do for productivity, and more importantly, how do we improve those to enhance your health, health and wellness? And what's the most important thing you've learned from the Living Lab so far? You know, I think it's everything. I think you have to have a balance of nutrition, exercise, but also then optimize the indoor environment. What should the temperature of the office be? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. Are you ready to give an edict? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think, right. I think we're, well, that's an ongoing discussion. There are offices all around this country that need to know the yes. answer to that question. Yes. All right, the topic at hand. So there is a role for alternative treatments for patients with cancer? Well, I, you know, I think that's kind of the, the terminology that we probably used 20 years ago, alternative medicine or alternative therapies. So we're a little, we're only 20 years behind the time. I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I think it's an important point because people still use that term. But in fact, most studies showed that patients really aren't using alternatives. They're not going outside and doing something entirely different from conventional. They're taking conventional medicine, the best we have to offer, but then they're adding other things like acupuncture, massage, meditation, and herbs. And what we've now learned is there's a lot of evidence that some of those things can actually be helpful as part of an overall approach. So testing or research is the difference? Well, I think if we go back 20 years ago, there wasn't that much data. Now we have tons of studies, many of them done here at Mayo, that actually can help us sift the wheat from the chaff. A lot of chaff out there, but there's some wheat, and we shouldn't throw away the, the baby with the bathwater. What are some of the new things that have been sifted out? Well, I think if you look at specific problems like pain, uh, a lot of patients dealing with cancer have pain as part of the treatment or even with uh, the cancer itself. Acupuncture has been shown in a number of studies to be very helpful for many patients. Uh, Mind-body practices, meditation, yoga, tai chi, help with all kinds of anxiety, stressful parts of the treatment, parts of the cancer. So those types of things we can pretty readily integrate and that gives us this newer concept of integrative medicine, taking the best of both worlds, but making sure it's evidence-based before we bring it into our 
uh, regular practice. So alternative complementary is sort of passe, and now we call it integrative medicine. Yeah, even the NIH, which used to have a center called the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, has dropped the alternative term and is using integrative. So I think integrative is really a better reflection of what research for the past 20 years has brought us to. It's a new point where we should be able to say, does this work as part of an overall approach and if it does, then we ought to offer it if it's helping our patients. Let's talk about some of the things that the research has shown that you listed that is working for patients. So you said acupuncture for pain. Are there other reasons? I just have one more question on acupuncture. What's the science behind that? And I think you've actually tried this, right? Oh, yeah. Tracy? Yes. So what's the science behind acupuncture? Where, how do you know where to put the needle? Does it hurt? Are there good acupuncturists <laughs> and not so good acupuncturists? And uh, Yes, uh, yeah, yes, read more the book, information yes here. and no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's a great question. I mean, acupuncture has been around for, you know, probably 3,000 years, depending on how you uh, look at some of the history from China. Uh, what's really changed in the last 20 years is uh, the number of studies that have been done with, I think, a good marriage of science and Eastern, if you want to think of it that way. In other words, we had a lot of older studies where perhaps an acupuncturist did a study, maybe the science wasn't great. Then we had a lot of scientists doing studies where they didn't participate or, or collaborate with the acupuncturist. That wasn't so great. Now we actually have a lot of studies where we can work with our acupuncture colleagues, have them help us design the studies in a way that still honors the practice, but we can be very satisfied with the rigor of the research findings. And I think that's what's changed. And no, it does not hurt. Okay, but I don't, I still don't understand it. I mean, if you've got a book there that that Tracy comes in with shoulder pain and you go to page 250 and said, put the needle there. Not I mean, quite. I mean, yeah, what's, so, so I don't very, get it. very different approach. So if, if I come to you with a shoulder problem, you're probably gonna follow a fairly similar approach to the next person you see with that type of shoulder pain. Uh, from a Eastern perspective, they're gonna look at much different uh, other things going on, the the tongue, the pulse, uh, things that we don't really think of as uh, an integral part of our diagnostic efforts. They're going to put all that together and come up with a very different approach, not just where the needles go, but probably different dietary recommendations, maybe different exercise recommendations. So for us, we approach things as sort of the diagnosis is X and we treat it this way. For them, the diagnosis is X, Y, Z. It's going to be very different for each individual. And how do you learn to become an acupuncturist? Well, there's a number of colleges now. There, the, we, We've uh, uh, hired a number of colleagues from one of the uh, universities up in the tw uh, Twin Cities uh, where you can have a, a three to four year program in learning acupuncture and also other elements of traditional Chinese medicine. So a lot of them are trained in things like Qigong, uh, different types of massage like Tui Na, and uh, even the herbs, how, how to use traditional Chinese medicine herbs. All right, let's go back to my question. So you use <laughs> acupuncture for pain. Are pain. there any other indications? So we see a lot of patients benefit from uh, acupuncture used for nausea. A lot of the chemotherapy regimens can cause nausea. Treating with acupuncture, very helpful. Any others? You know, uh, we see a lot of people use acupuncture for a lot of different things, sleep, headaches, migraine, uh, preventing migraines. Uh, I think there's a lot of studies out there for pain. There's a lot of studies out there for nausea. I think those are well accepted indications. Then there's a lot of other things which are much more individual. And I'm very willing to try it with a patient if we don't have a better solution from a conventional standpoint. They also help middle-aged middle runners. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, Sometimes that hip gets all out of whack and acupuncture seems to do the trick. So well, I go to the orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. <laughs> no yeah. way. I, I, I Let's understand. talk about aromatherapy. So again, if you think about what's going on when you're being treated for a difficult diagnosis like cancer, there's a lot of stress. 
uh, stress from the diagnosis, stress from the treatment, stress just from having your life upended. We know that stress does a lot of negative things. It suppresses immune function. It can slow wound healing. Those are two things we don't want to have happen while we're trying to treat uh, somebody with cancer. So anything we can bring to the table that helps people relax can have a big impact, not to cure the cancer, but to be part of the overall approach. And aromatherapy falls in that category. Many people find it very relaxing. Some people find it invigorating. There's different uh, aromas that can be used to improve your mood, help you relax, maybe sleep better with lavender or chamomile. So I think there's a role for it. It's not going to cure cancer. We're not looking for it to do that. We're asking it, can it be part of the overall approach to help the patient feel better? I like that uh, things that when we're talking about to help benefit cancer patients, you've got acupuncture, aromatherapy, and the third on that list that we've got is exercise. Yes. Well, I think anytime somebody comes to us in the integrative medicine program and says, I want to take an herb or I want to do acupuncture, our first question is, did you build your foundation? And the foundation is always, what are you doing for nutrition? What are you doing for exercise? What's your mind-body approach? What's your social support? How's your sleep? And what's your spirituality? If we can build those seven things as a foundation, then adding things like the acupuncture and herbs and so forth can play a role. But the foundation is still going to be what I would consider very basic wellness that most physicians would understand. That's where we should start. All right, what about hypnosis? So we do hypnosis here at Mayo Clinic. We have, I think, good success with it. Again, it's not for everybody. People seem to have different degrees of how susceptible they are. But for most patients, uh, we can achieve a lot of reduction in stress, sometimes with pain. Uh, of course, there's a number of older studies where people tried to use it for smoking cessation, weight loss, and so forth. Not a lot of studies, but again, some anecdotal patient stories that uh, were very helpful. And do you have hypnotists? Uh, they're specially trained people. We have a couple physicians and one licensed uh, practitioner who is uh, available to do hypnotherapy. Are here. you one of them? No, I'm not. You can't hypnotize Tracy before we break? <laughs> no. <laughs> Our guest is the director of research for the integrative medicine program at the Mayo Clinic and also the director of the Well Living Lab, Dr. Brent Bauer. All right, Dr. Bauer, we've got more modalities we want to ask you about. Sure. The three M's, massage, music and meditation. So, so massage is easy, right? I mean, I think if you've ever had a massage and you enjoyed it, you can see where the benefit is. Not everybody likes massage, but for people who are kind of wired for massage, the studies are, are really pretty much inescapable. Can reduce pain, can reduce tension, can reduce anxiety. So we love massage in terms of another modality, not to cure cancer, but to help the patient deal with the overall uh, milieu of uh, mm -hmm. treating cancer, recovering from cancer, and going on to have yeah. health. And who wouldn't want a massage? Right. I don't know. Again, middle-aged running. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about music therapy. That kind of, for me anyway, comes into the, into the aromatherapy yeah. avenue that is just stuff that helps relieve stress. Absolutely. So I think a, a quick distinction, music therapy involves a mu music therapist. So there are people who are trained to be part of the clinical team. They come in, they have goals, they assess the patient, and they use music very targeted. So they might uh, play an instrument with the patient, they may sing, they may do different things. And then there's also what I think is more commonly thought of, just music. Mm -hmm. Do we play music uh, in the operating room? Some Many physicians do. Do we listen to music while we're recovering? Do we listen to music in the hospital room? We did a, tr uh, a small trial with uh, Chip Davis from Mannheim Steamroller many years ago, just playing nature sounds in the room, in the uh, post-operative setting for patients who'd had open heart surgery, lowered pain, lowered anxiety. Mm. So I think we're sort of wired for nature, we're sort of wired for music, and if you like it and we can incorporate it in whatever setting and whatever choice you choose, why not? 
meditation you can do on your own or with an instructor. Definitely love the whole mind-body realm. Meditation is probably the most familiar. Uh, not every patient can meditate you know, in the classical sense, but we can usually find something of a mind-body practice. So if they don't like meditation, we'll try Tai Chi, we'll try yoga, we'll try a whole lot of different things. There's a lot of biofeedback devices on the market now that can actually measure heart rate variability, your EEG, your brain waves, and help you learn exactly how to get the brain into that setting. There's lots of meditation prompts or podcasts or, you know, that you can find online as well. I think, I think the, the critical thing is we're all unique. So what works for you may not work for me, may not work for the next person. So I'm never very prescriptive. I always try and give people a lot of choices and then permission to play. Try yoga, try Tai Chi. You find the one you like, that's for you. Before we move on to the bogus claims, I just have to say yoga seems to have gone much more mainstream. I know the classes that I go to, there are so many retired people, so many more men. There's, I mean, it's just really seemed to broaden out the people that are turning to yoga. Yeah. And, and I think for the same reason, acupuncture is sort of following that same mm-hmm. pathway. As the research gets stronger and stronger, as more and more quality studies are done, yoga just keeps coming back and showing it can almost, in every study, comes back and shows reduction in stress, usually reduction in pain, and then a lot of other health benefits that just kind of say, well, why not try it? And again, I have patients who can't do it, who don't like it, and I don't push them, but if they, they try it and they don't like it, try something else. But if they do, it can be a great ac- uh, accompaniment to the rest of their wellness program. If you want to try yoga, is it best to go uh, find a yoga instructor and go to a class, or can you potentially learn yoga from a podcast or a video? We, we do a little bit of both. We have uh, Mayo, our, our patient education folks have done a great job. There's some really nice CDs and DVDs we can give patients, and they're very simple moves. Go home and try this little bit of Tai Chi, try this little bit of yoga. That sometimes is enough to say, nope, that's not for me. Okay, then find something else. If you kind of like it, then definitely find a good course with a good instructor who will work with you at the level you're at, not push you too fast. All right, we have to talk about the bogus questionable treatments. And at the top of my list, um, CBD is absolutely everywhere today. And yeah. what sort of research has been done on that so far? Well, yeah, and I wouldn't start out, it's probably not in the bogus category, mm-hmm. it's in the be further differentiated category. <laughs> so, so CBD oil uh, or CBD is one of the components of marijuana. So the marijuana plant, the cannabis sativa, can produce either the uh, form that has a lot of THC, that would be the typical marijuana, let's get high. And then there's also hemp, which is the same plant species, but just cultivated not to have THC. So you can harvest CBD from either one, but it gets very dicey with the legal structure if you're taking it from the plant that has a lot of THC. But CBD by itself, along with several other cannabidiol-like components, actually seem to have some anti-inflammatory effects and for many patients, anti-anxiety effects. Now the trouble is we don't have good long-term studies. Oh, that's what I want to know. Uh, of, of 500 people who took it and we watched them for two years and then we know the side. So it's very intriguing. There is animal data and very, very tiny human data to suggest we're onto something. But like everything that's ever come down the pike before, it will not be the single silver bullet answer all questions, but it's probably gonna find a role to be very helpful for select patients when used properly. Do you think it'll be legalized? 
Uh, well, CBD is legal if you don't in, sell in, it as CBD. In states. Yeah. Certain yeah. states. Yep. Not it, everywhere. Right? Yep. If, if you, it, how you advertise it and how you promote it, it puts you in trouble with the FTC. Uh, but with the new legislation on hemp and hemp farming, uh, CBD seems to be okay, at least from a consumer perspective. If you're selling it, you may have some other challenges. All right. Let's talk about vitamins and supplements because there are a lot of claims out there that uh, some of these are anti-cancer or have an anti-cancer effect. So I'd like your opinion. Let's start with vitamin D. So uh, another one of those great vitamin stories where if you would ask us 20 years ago, what do we care about vitamin D? Most physicians said not much. It's probably important for bones. Now, if we look in the last 20 years, tons of studies suggest that vitamin D plays a role, not just in bone health, but brain health, muscle health. Uh, And now we have studies that show vitamin D deficiency in older people can actually cause them to fall more often because of effects Mm. on the muscles. So it kind of went from something only the wacky folks were talking about to now it's one of the most common uh, blood uh, laboratory tests done here at Mayo Clinic. Is it a routine of laboratory tests? I don't think it's routine, but I think if, and I don't do it for every patient, but if I have a patient who falls in the category of more likely to be vitamin D deficient, and that tends to be people who are older, people with darker skin. So we see a a real lot of uh, vitamin D deficiency in our our, uh, patients who come from the Middle East. Uh, Darker skin and oftentimes uh, covering the skin uh, totally, we see almost an epidemic of vitamin D deficiency. Because they're not getting vitamin D from the sun. From the sun. All right, what about green tea? Green tea is probably one of those things that falls in the category, do it for your health, have a cup or two per day. Taking supplements where they've tried to extract the the magic portions, probably not so helpful. What are the things that are not, that have been proven to not help people? Yeah, unfortunately, that's... There's a long list. Do do we have two hours? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think, you know, obviously some of the things that have kind of had their day in the sun, shark cartilage, well, it was one study or a one, shark cartilage enema that was even oh yeah well better. and the coffee enemas are still out there yeah. there's still many places in you know not necessarily the united states so easily but certainly go across the border and you can get all kinds of uh, uh, coffee enemas and so forth things that have real danger uh you can go to the uh, couple clinics in uh, germany where you can get ozone injected in your bloodstream i mean there's a lot of things that desperate people especially if you've been to a place like mayo and you're at a point where we don't have a lot to offer you then it's you can see why people would be interested in I got to try something, but really to help them not spend their time and resources doing things that we know can help and could be harmful. I think that's equally as important as helping them make good decisions about other things that can be helpful and improve their quality of life. All right. What about cupping? So cupping is kind of a cousin to acupuncture, same kind of concept. You're, you're basically trying to manipulate this flow of energy, right? So the acupuncture needles are kind of hitting these points where the energy flows. The cupping sort of the same concept. Fewer studies, but kind of in that same ballpark, seems like there's probably something there, but we don't have really deep, deep studies yet. And Laetrile, because there used to be a fair number of patients who would go from here down to Mexico to get Laetrile. I think it was peach seeds, wasn't yep, it? Yep, yep. Yeah, so, so uh, uh, Laetril uh, has a lot of interesting uh, studies in test tubes and then in humans never really worked. Uh, a number of studies were done. Uh, they've all been negative. I don't think there's any reason to be going after uh, uh, Laetril any further at this point. All right, and some herbs, uh, curcumin and echinacea, for example? Yeah, so echinacea was like one of the top selling herbs 10 years ago. Now it's kind of dropped off, mostly because studies showed it doesn't seem to have as much impact 
on fighting colds and flu as it once was thought to do. So that's where research is actually changing behavior. I think that's good. Uh, curcumin, on the other hand, I think is still in that undifferentiated category. Preclinical, so test tube and animal studies, does have some anti-cancer activity. And it's pretty good in terms of anti-inflammatory effects. So it's plausible it could have a role. But again, we don't have the large clinical trial, so it's premature to say I'm gonna take it as part of my cancer treatment because like many herbs, it can interfere with many of the chemotherapy agents we use. So it's not a free for all where I've heard something on the radio or I saw something on a TV show, I'm gonna start taking it. You always have to have that first step of go back and talk to your clinical team. I'm thinking about X, does this interfere with my chemo? Does it interfere with my cancer? Does it interfere with my other medications? And is there enough evidence that we could agree that I should try it? And I think if we have that conversation, we can keep ourselves out of a lot of trouble. All right, one last one, magnets. Uh, well, they're fun to play with on the fridge. Uh, there's a few small studies that suggest maybe it can help with some muscle pain here and there. Nothing that would suggest it could help cancer. All right. Well, I think that the key here is to, it's called integrative medicine now, and do what your traditional, your regular, your oncologist doctor tells you to do when it comes to treating your cancer. But also it's reasonable to integrate some of these other modalities at the same time. Absolutely. Of course, we are sympathies to anybody who has been diagnosed with cancer, but there are lots of things out there to help them. Dr. Brent Bauer, thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about a rare form of cancer, cancer of the bile duct. And later on in the show, we'll discuss peripheral artery disease. And now with the latest health and medical news, here's Vivian Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Vaccines have received a lot of news attention lately, and while vaccinations are most often thought of as a childhood rite of passage, adults need immunizations to stay healthy too. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently simplified the adult immunization schedule, but questions about vaccines remain, especially from new moms and mothers-to-be. Mayo Clinic family medicine physician Dr. Tina Arden shares info that can help answer some questions. Before pregnancy, women should know about their varicella or chickenpox status, as well as rubella. Rubella infection during pregnancy can lead to serious complications or outcomes such as miscarriages, birth defects, or fetal demise. Both the varicella vaccine and the vaccine typically given for rubella are live vaccines, so these should be received before pregnancy. Women should avoid getting pregnant for at least one month after receiving these vaccines. During pregnancy, women should receive a tetanus vaccine, reduced diphtheria toxoid, and a tetanus diphtheria and pertussis, or T. DAP booster, which is given during the third trimester. No matter when a woman last received a Tdap booster, she should receive it again with each subsequent pregnancy. Additionally, any woman who is pregnant during flu season should receive a flu vaccine. Now, you might wonder if vaccines are safe for an unborn baby. Dr. Arden says there is really only theoretical risk when getting vaccines during pregnancy. The CDC says, quote, the benefits of vaccinating pregnant women usually outweigh potential risks when the likelihood of disease exposure is high, when infection would pose a risk to the mother or fetus, and when the vaccine is unlikely to cause harm. And in other news, let's talk about summer. The return of summer cookout brings with it the risk for sickness from a bacteria that can end up spoiling more than one meal. Cook hamburgers incorrectly and you could end up with a case of E. coli. 
Dr. Nipunira Dupaksi, a Mayo Clinic infectious disease specialist, says E. coli is a type of bacteria, and most commonly we hear about it in raw or undercooked hamburger meat. She says E. coli bacteria can create some stomach-turning symptoms such as abdominal pain and nausea, but it can get even worse. There's a specific type of E. coli which can cause bloody diarrhea and has been associated with a condition that can cause kidney damage, especially in young children. The elderly are also at higher risk for problems with E. coli, as are pregnant women, people with underlying digestive problems, and those with weakened immune systems. Dr. Rajapaksi says if someone were to be exposed to E. coli in something they ate or drank, they may have symptom onset within a couple of days to a few weeks after infection or exposure. She says the best way to avoid a bout with the bacteria is to wash your hands and thoroughly cook your hamburgers. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, the bile ducts are a series of thin tubes that connect your liver to your gallbladder and your small intestine. Their major job is to move a fluid called bile from the liver and gallbladder into the small intestine where it helps digest fats in the food. Cancer of the bile duct, called cholangiocarcinoma, is an uncommon form of cancer that occurs mostly in people older than age of 50, but it can occur at any age. Because the bile ducts are deep inside the body, small tumors can't be seen or felt during routine physical exams, and there are no blood tests or other tests that can reliably screen for bile duct cancers. Because of this, most bile duct cancers are found only after the cancer has grown enough to cause signs or symptoms. That's a bad deal. Unfortunate. And, yeah, I'm here to discuss is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Brett Peterson. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Peterson. It's good to see you again. Thank you. It's good to be back. So I guess cancer can occur virtually anywhere, even in the bile ducts. Sure, even in these uh, small tubes that are really quite tiny. Um, but typically early on, we don't know anything about it until it reaches obstruction of the duct. That's usually the first symptom that will bring someone in? Um, well, cholangiocarcinoma in past years also included the gallbladder. And nowadays we think of gallbladder cancer as somewhat of a separate entity. But gallbladder cancer can present with um, uh, more of a mass invading the liver, causing pain and discomfort. Whereas cholangiocarcinoma of the ducts themselves usually presents with obstruction leading to jaundice and liver test abnormalities. Tell us what you mean by jaundice. It involves both the skin and the eyes is where you usually see yep. it? So if the bile flow is obstructed, or if the liver cells themselves aren't working well, as in hepatitis, the bile backs up into the bloodstream. And some components of bile, uh, the bilirubin, which is a breakdown product from blood cells, um, deposits into the skin and the eyes, causing the yellow or orangey uh, golden appearance of both of those areas. Is that why your skin itches also? Is it, it because of the bile? Yeah, well, it, uh, it's components in bile and bile acids likely that lead to itching, which uh, doesn't occur at all in some folks and is really the dominant overwhelming symptom in others. Can this also change the color of your stools? <laughs> yes. When you lose the flow of bile into the intestinal tract, the stools become very light and lose their typical dark brownish color. So they look uh, gray or very pale. Are there some people who are at higher risk for getting cholangiocarcinoma than others? Sure, there are a number of risk factors, but currently today, 
the largest uh, proportion of cholangiocarcinoma is about one-third of cases occurring in folks who already have an inflammatory condition of the bile ducts called sclerosing cholangitis or primary sclerosing cholangitis. This is a condition that arises predominantly in patients who have inflammatory bowel disease, mm. ulcerative colitis more often than Crohn's disease, and uh, somewhere around 7 to 10 percent of patients have clinical uh, inflammatory changes of PSC uh, among colitis patients. Of those who develop PSC, somewhere around 5 to 15 percent will go on to develop clinical cholangiocarcinoma. But compared to other cancers, uh, cholangiocarcinoma is pretty rare. It's a, it? it's a rare cancer, far, what's the, far. What's the youngest patient you've ever seen with cholangiocarcinoma? Uh, well, we certainly see them in the, in the mid and late 20s, and uh, I wouldn't oh. be surprised if there are younger cases in specific subgroups uh, with uh, chronic stone disease in the liver or with um, some inherited uh, abnormalities that are extremely rare, but uh, most commonly anywhere from the 20s to the 60s. How does it end up being diagnosed? <clears throat> Once someone uh, presents with liver test abnormalities, commonly with jaundice, sometimes with infection above the blockage, uh, then imaging tests are done with usually CT scans or MRIs. And during an MRI, the algorithm can be applied mathematically to give a picture of the bile ducts themselves as opposed to a picture of the entire organ. And that will show a shape of where the ducts are open, where they're pinched, where they're dilated above a pinch. Once that's leading us to a strong suspicion of blockage, we do an endoscopic procedure called an endoscopic retrograde cholangiogram, where cholangiogram refers to a bile duct x-ray. Mm -hmm. We go down through the mouth to the attachment of the bile duct in the intestine and put a small catheter into the duct and advance dye up to the liver and take some x-rays, which shows us where it is. Through that same path, we can acquire samples with brushings or biopsies. We can put small instruments up inside to look at the tight spots. Um, even then, it's sometimes difficult to prove under the microscope. So occasionally, this requires repeated testing or repeated maneuvers. Are most of these cancers, cholangiocarcinomas, high-grade, fast-growing? Um, most of them are high-grade and difficult to treat. Uh, the speed of growth is sometimes hard to estimate because we often don't know about them until they're somewhat advanced, and many of them present either in a size or a location that makes them very difficult to treat. How many of them have already spread elsewhere? I assume you have to stage the patient, meaning determine whether or not it's localized to the, to the liver or the bile ducts, or if it has spread elsewhere? Yeah, so uh, the cholangiocarcinoma itself at its original site uh, varies uh, in some important ways. It can be within the liver, which is more difficult to treat and uh, more difficult to remove surgically. It can be right at the junction of the ducts, such as where a trunk of a tree splits into multiple branches. The anatomy of involvement there is very critical as to what can be done for it, or it can be below in the major trunk where surgery is uh, much more feasible. Uh, spread often occurs into other areas of the liver or into the lymph nodes right neighboring the duct at the base of the liver. But surgery is the first line of treatment? So for those that uh, are localized, especially in the duct below the liver, surgery is a preferred treatment and the best approach for cure. Uh, for those right at the split 
um, between the right and left liver. We can sometimes do surgery, which is much more major, by removing half of the liver with the involved ducts if the other side is free. Uh, and uh, more recently, our institution has um, been one of the leaders in developing a, a program that's now uh, becoming more widespread around the country using a combination of chemotherapy, radiation therapy as a prelude to liver transplantation. And that is available for patients with a very um, specific subset of the size and uh, localization of their tumor. It's not available if it's already spread to lymph nodes. But that's a, obviously an aggressive form of surgery, which is quite successful for that small subset uh, for whom it, uh, who are candidates for it. So surgery is very difficult because of the location. But let's say that you could remove it uh, and not remove the liver. How do you reconnect the bile duct? Usually a, a loop of bowel down well below the, uh, the stomach in the small intestine is cut in two, brought up to the liver and sewn onto the bile duct. And then where it was cut farther down is reattached. So the bowel has a, a Y-shaped conformation. That's amazing. What's the survival rate like? The survival rate, uh, especially for those who can't have full excision or transplant, is not good. It's um, very, very low uh, amongst all cancers uh, when we look at five-year survivals. Like 20% like or even probably lower? less than 10%. Despite using all the modalities, whether you can use surgery or not, but you mentioned also radiation, chemotherapy. Is there any targeted therapy out there or immunotherapy that's in the works? There are a variety of protocols uh, using uh, immunotherapy and uh, other uh, antibody-based therapies, but they're um, highly focused research protocols in oncologic practices. Well, we're certainly hoping that with an additional amount of time, they will help you treat Mm -hmm. this dreaded disease called cholangiocarcinoma. Bile duct cancer, we've been talking with Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Brett Peterson. Dr. Peterson, thanks so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Peripheral artery disease is a common problem of circulation caused by narrowing of the arteries due to plaque formation, which reduces blood flow to your limbs. When you develop peripheral artery disease, or PAD, your extremities, usually your legs, don't receive enough blood flow to keep up with the demand. And this can cause symptoms, usually leg pain when walking, known as claudication. PAD is also likely to be a sign of a more widespread problem, the accumulation of fatty deposits in all of your arteries, known as atherosclerosis. Here to discuss peripheral artery disease is Mayo Clinic vascular surgeon, Dr. Randall DiMartino. Welcome back to the program, Dr. DiMartino. Thank you. Good morning. Dr. DiMartino, always good to see you. So this term, peripheral artery disease, break it down for us. Define those terms so our listeners know exactly what we're talking about. Sure. When we talk about peripheral artery disease, peripheral meaning uh, the circulation mostly to the extremities, often the lower extremities, as opposed to central uh, atherosclerotic disease, which we usually refer to as in the heart. Um, As far as the arteries, we differentiate them from the veins. The arteries are what bring blood flow to the organs or to the extremities. The veins are responsible for bringing it back. And the disease, typically uh, in older patients, uh, we see the hardening and plaques that build up over time uh, that can limit circulation to the extremities uh, and causing the symptoms as, as you were just discussing. Typically, cramping that occurs with walking uh, as your muscles need more oxygen, the blood flow can't keep up with demand, you get a cramp, similar as if you would run too hard and you need to take a couple of deep breaths. Uh, and as you relax, 
the blood flow and oxygen levels reaccumulate and the cramp goes away and then you can go again. Typically that can happen over and over again. It's called window gazer's disease because uh, people would walk down the street, they'd get a cramp, they'd just stop, look at a window, and a few minutes later it's gone, they can go on their way. So, window gazer's yeah. disease? I like that. <laughs> that cramping is the main way that you know that someone has PAD? That's the most typical symptom. You can have uh, some people who have very minor blockages may have no symptoms. Patients who have very, very advanced disease may have pain at rest. We call that rest pain. Uh, and uh, patients who have even more profound disease may have wounds that can't heal because of lack of oxygen. So what's the cause, the underlying cause? You, you talked about our atherosclerosis and clogging up of the arteries, but why some people and why not others? It can happen for a multitude of reasons. It can be uh, some of them, maybe not all of them, depending on genetics that can uh, contribute as well, like heart disease. Uh, but typically, advanced age, uh, men versus women are more likely to get it. Smokers, uh, whether previously or current, uh, and uh, high elevated cholesterol levels, uh, especially over time. Uh, it can be uh, diabetes as well can be a major contributor at renal disease, such as patients on dialysis. So these are the patient populations we see the most. As I say, many patients have some of these factors, not all of them. Some people who have uh, genetics may not have any of them. Diabetes, you mentioned, and it, and it seems to me like we're seeing more and more patients who are diabetic who have this problem. Right? Diabetes raises havoc with your blood vessels. It does. The long-term elevated uh, uh, blood glucose or blood sugar levels uh, cause damage to the artery walls. It's a little bit different than the typical smoker uh, uh, disease that uh, they get in the thighs. Diabetes can sometimes affect the smaller vessels in the calf, uh, but but results in very similar problems in terms of the circulation. So how do you diagnose it? Is it just you get the cramp? That's the most obvious way to diagnose it? Uh, an astute clinician may pick up on that uh, description and be able to uh, gather the mo a likely diagnosis. Physical exam is helpful when you see your doctor in terms of uh, palpating pulses, but uh, an ankle, ankle brachial index, which is where they measure the blood pressure of your arms and legs and compare the two, is uh, the most typical way to formally diagnose the disease. And we get a ratio where if it's less than 0.9, that's typically abnormal. Uh, and then there are ranges that we see for claudication, typically from 0.5 to, to 0.9. And then for patients who have more advanced disease, it may be lower than that. Explain that test for us, the ankle brachial index. They, uh, a, a technician will uh, take a blood pressure of your, both of your arms, usually use the higher uh, value of the two. Then they'll put the blood pressure cuff or a special one on your ankles and do the exact same test. And then they basically just do a fraction of the ankle number over the brachial number. I know you're, I'm the layperson here. I know you're checking blood pressure, but it would make sense to me that your ankle is farther away from your heart. So maybe that that blood pressure would be a little bit lower. Should I go to medical school? <laughs> uh, actually, it's um, in the normal person, it's slightly higher. Really? That gets a little bit Gravity. more in depth, but uh, yeah, it uh, a typical uh, normal value is one to point to one point one. So when we do see people below 0.9, that's uh, typically an abnormal value. So what that test shows you, if there's a significant reduction in blood flow to the lower extremity. Exactly. All right. Uh, so you've made, and, and by the way, there are other things that can mimic peripheral artery disease, like uh, spinal stenosis, for example, can cause similar symptoms, right? Very much so. The sometimes referred to as neurogenic claudication, although that's somewhat of a misnomer. Uh, but it causes very similar lower extremity symptoms with walking, uh, typically when you're more upright as uh, the nerves are pinched. 
but as opposed to peripheral arterial disease where just stopping will make your legs better, uh, these patients typically have to sit down and roll their backs forward, and that relieves the compression on the nerves. That's one way to tell based on history. All right, let's talk about treatment because I know you've got uh, a lot of options and you're much better at treating these patients than you used to be. Exactly. The first and foremost thing is making sure you're on the right medications. Uh, Typically, non-surgical treatment and modification of risk factors is the number one thing to do. Uh, So making sure you're on the appropriate cardiovascular protective medicines, as we discussed, it's a a systemic disease often. So um, when you talk about risk factors, so if you smoke, you got to quit smoking. If you're diabetic, you get your blood sugar under control. The medication, what kind of medication are you talking about? Most patients with symptomatic peripheral arterial disease are recommended to be on statin medications uh, for to control keep their of cholesterol, cholesterol down. Okay, and uh, antiplatelet medicines uh, such as an aspirin or uh, clopidogrel or Plavix are, are to often keep you from forming clots in the artery. Okay. Mm-hmm. After that, uh, we recommend walking programs for patients. So these are sessions that are uh, three times a week uh, for twelve weeks, uh, similar to a cardiac rehabilitation type of program, and. Uh, They work at developing collaterals or accessory arteries or smaller arteries to work around blockages. So I talk to patients, it's like, uh, you know, sort of beefing up your back roads in case the highway is closed so uh, you can get uh, better flow down to the legs. But Uh, do they have to walk through the pain if they get cramping that happens? They just have to keep on walking? Exactly. That's what tells the body to create new channels or expand the channels that it has. They're easy to spot at the gym because they're crying while they're walking. (laughs) Yeah. All right, and uh, let's say that those they've they've done those all those things you've suggested, and they still have the problem. So after a trial of uh, uh, exercise therapy for claudication, if there's li- symptoms are still lifestyle limiting, we can offer either endovascular techniques, which may involve placement of a stent or balloon uh, across a blockage to expand it and reopen it, uh, similar to how they do in the heart. Uh, for advanced blockages or long blockages, uh, bypass surgery may be recommended, and that's where we use a vein or another conduit uh, or, or material to bring blood flow around a blockage, uh, similar to a heart bypass. So tell us a little bit more about this balloon procedure. You actually uh, snake a catheter down into the area of the blockage, balloon it to open it up, and then you put a, a stent in there to hold it open? Correct. It's, this can often be done as a same-day procedure. You're typically sedated, so not fully under anesthesia, and we navigate a wire and catheter across those blockages, and then uh, the stent is uh, to help reinforce and prevent a re-narrowing from happening in the future. And how successful is it? It depends on the length of the blockage and and the degree of narrowing, uh, whereas a narrowing may be easy to cross. A total blockage uh, may be more difficult, so it depends on the characteristics and uh, so imaging is usually used either before or during to help make that assessment of whether a stent is appropriate and would be likely to be successful. Even if you surgically treat them, though, I would imagine that you have to still make the lifestyle changes and different things of that nature. Otherwise, you'd be right back there getting another surgery. Or does it, re- does it take care of it and you don't have to do it again? Uh, you're exactly right. Uh, it is imperative that uh, all, of those, all of these more advanced treatments are all built off of lifestyle modification as the first thing. We know that any of these therapies will not work as well if uh, you continue to smoke or uh, don't control your blood sugars or cholesterol. And we should probably uh, let our audience know that sometimes if the endovascular procedure, the balloon procedure doesn't work, then it might require open surgery. And sometimes that's not successful and an amputation can be the result. Unfortunately, in very advanced uh, uh, 
cases, patients with advanced disease uh, that can that can occur. We do everything we can to to prevent that, uh, and often patients may have to go through multiple procedures uh, in order to make sure that we can uh, salvage the leg in in a very advanced state. All right, peripheral artery disease symptoms, risk factors, diagnosis, and ways different ways to treat it. Doctor DiMartino, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.